Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. Joining me, as always, for the 37th time is Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. What's up, Ben? I feel like we're getting really old hat at this, you know? I like I like it. I, you know, we've, it took us a while. You know, this isn't the most, you know, fancy operation that no. we got going on here. But um, I think we finally got into a rhythm and a groove. So hopefully we're not overwhelming people with our actual weekly regularly posted podcast i know our professionalism <laughs> is is scary for for you and us i'm sure who are we yeah who are we indeed we've got a pretty interesting show this week hopefully we're going to talk about uh what's happened last week in barcelona stuttgart bucharest and marrakesh four pretty interesting champions i think all in their own rights and then we're going to talk about one of the big stories of today we record this monday evening which is jason collins becoming the first, there's a lot of modifiers here, the first active male big four sports athlete person to come out as gay. And we're going to talk about what ramifications that has on the tennis world and you know how tennis is on these issues. We're going to take a number, take a couple questions, and take it home. You ready to, uh, ready to do this thing, Courtney? High five, Ben. High five. Yeah, so probably the most prominent tournament last week was the one in Stuttgart, which is a WTA tournament. Always had a really good field. I believe they had something like eight of the top 11 were there. It was so good that Roberta Vinci, who's number 12, was unseated and lost early. So it wasn't, you know, unless she was really dangerous and looming or anything. Hey, it's exhausting being a Fed Cup stalwart. That's true. Being a Fed Cup hero. That's true. I can't even imagine the weight of Italy on her shoulders. Roberta, Roberta needed a nap. <laughs> she, she did. person who did not need a nap unless she wants to fall asleep at the wheel of yet another Porsche, is uh, Maria Sharapova, who won, defended her title, now has 20 straight wins on red clay. She beat Lina in the final. She had a few not-so-straightforward matches on her way there. Sharapova beat Safarova, Kerber, and Ivanovich all in three sets, um, and then beat Lina in straight sets in the final. Courtney, what do you make of the increasing consistency of Claypova and the Claypova phenomenon, really? It confuses me. It really does. It just it really confuses me. I mean, the craziest stat I think uh, of all when it comes to kind of assessing Maria Sharapova's odd transformation into this awkwardly balletic cow on ice. Yeah. What is it? Six of her last eight tournaments have come on clay title wins, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty remarkable. And and so it's just, I guess for me, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around this idea that that she is quite possibly i mean she she's she is kind of the one to beat on the red clay right now obviously we 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 don't know what her genuine prospects are until we get to madrid and rome where she will be joined by the her her two nemeses serena williams and victoria azarenka right but you know it it i don't know the whole the whole maria sharapova being good on red on red clay is is confusing it's confusing and it's completely <laughs> undeniable too like this yeah, is not really, an, this is not an anomaly at this point yeah. Yeah, yeah no she's really it's her best surface now like it is. by far grass definitely is and even though she made the semis of the uh, finals of the olympics rather on grass recently her grass results other than that haven't been quite as overwhelming uh, final she made the final 
Of Wimbledon, too. Yeah, but that was against a pretty easy draw. Um, yeah. And I guess Olympus were a little bit, too. But Clay is where she's made her hay. She hasn't played Serena on red clay. I don't think ever, actually. I don't think they've ever played each other on red clay. She so, did. When? Oh, sorry. No, maybe I'm thinking Hennen. Yeah. I'm thinking she played Hennen. Yeah, she played Justine a few times at the French. Right. Never Serena, though, because neither of them were ever getting that far. And they mm-hmm. usually were pretty high seeds. So... It'll be interesting to see if they meet each other on red clay. Hopefully they do. We got a question to sort of sidebar a little bit about Madrid asking if the clay or the altitude is a bigger factor. And they both are. So if they play on on Madrid clay, a little bit of an asterisk there compared to what that means for Paris. But uh, I think Maria should definitely want a shot at Serena on a Roland Garros surface. It seems like the best place for her to get back in that rivalry. Right, right. I mean, it's it's hard too because I guess from kind of thinking at it from Sharapova's mindset like last year her beating Azarenka in the Stuttgart final I think really was a monkey off her back yeah to finally you know get that win over Vika and and really kind of gave her the confidence going through and obviously she didn't have to play Serena on red clay for the rest of the the remaining two tournaments after that it gave it gave her a bump you could say yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it gave her a bump, whether she liked it or not. See what I did there? Yeah. I saw what you did there, and I saw what Vika did there, so that makes sense. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's to me, if I'm Sharapova, there is a part of me that's kind of like, God, if I lose to Serena on red clay in, in Madrid or Rome, like that's going to be in the back of my head in Paris. Yeah. I guess. But she's also, a tr- I mean, a way better competitor than I am, so <laughs> she's probably wants, she definitely wants that challenge. Definitely, definitely. And I think that it's, it was an interesting week in Sukart for a few reasons. I think a bunch of intriguing characters sort of emerged. Uh, Lina having another good clay result. I mean, I think her French Open win, her breaking out there wasn't foreshadowed at all. But since then, she's done things to let it know that it, you know, let people know that this was not a fluke by any stretch. Uh, finals in Rome, finals in Stukart now. And so she seems pretty much back to 100% after the ankle. Woes. I think she took a good amount of time off to recover fully from that, seems like. And then Petra Kvitova, I think, had a pretty decent week, lost to Lina in a pretty good match. And uh, Bethany Maddox-Sands also did well. So wh- who were the people who jumped out to you besides the champ? Besides the champ, it, I mean, I guess the stories really were Lina and Bethany Maddox-Sands. I think, I think, I mean, we've talked about Bethany on the show before, just how well she's been playing since the uh, the end of February when she made the finals of Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. And since then, she's beat Sloane Stevens. She, you know, made it through qualifying in Shitgard and made the semifinals, which has to be her best career result at any tournament yeah. ever given the, how difficult, how stacked the draw is in Stuttgart. And she's playing remarkably well. So she's going to be, you know, a dangerous floater if she can hold this form through in Paris, I think. I mean, she's right now, obviously, we have two more big tournaments to go. But right now, she, she would definitely be one of those names that I would I would want to look for right when the draw comes out to see if they she draws like a, a Wozniacki or... Right. You know, a top 10 player, you know, that, that she might have a chance of pulling off a, a pretty major upset. Yeah. So, yeah. As far as as far as Bethany goes, we haven't talked about her tennis much on the show necessarily. I think we've talked about this maybe before off air. Do you think she should be seen as something of an underachiever in her career, given these flashes that she's had from time to time, seeing what she's capable of? Hmm. People don't really think of her as someone who should be doing anything, in fairness to her. Yeah. But should should we? Yeah, that's a t- that's hard to say. I mean, she made the fourth round that's... Wimbledon. She beat Bartoli Wimbledon to make the fourth round in 08. And Bartolo was defending a final there. She obviously has been a very good doubles player. Had a couple, you know, out of nowhere wins and 
like third round type runs at tournaments. Um, yeah, but nothing yeah. really like this. No, nothing like this. That's for sure. And she clobbered Sloan. Also, we should yeah, mention. she did. I mean, the only thing that's stopping me from saying that, yeah, she's underachieved is because there is a part of me that kind of thinks that this is all coming together at the right time for her. Okay. That just kind of watching her play, there's just a tremendous sense of calm about her in how she's going about her business right now. Very methodical. Very methodical. Very um, clear in her thought process of what she wants to do out there and just going out and just executing it. Mm-hmm. And when something like that happens, that's different than the Bethany that I've seen before, who played with a little bit more kind of like, not panic, but just no real scheme, committed scheme mm-hmm. in how she wanted to play. That makes me kind of think that it's more of a maturity issue, which makes me think that it's more of a, she just needed time to get there. Although, you know, her noticeably fitter yeah. these days, she was, she found out that she had some food allergies and, and cut that stuff out of her diet and her physique has changed. You can really see it. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm kind of 50-50 as to whether or not this is almost like a Schiavone type thing. Not that I'm saying that Bethany's going to win the French Open. You heard it here but, first, folks. Yeah. Courtney is but, saying uh, that Bethany is going to win the French Open. That is exactly what I just said. Yeah. But yeah, I just kind of think maybe it just is coming together at a later time for her. Whereas I feel like for like for somebody with like Lee Na, I feel like I'm much more inclined to say that she underachieved right. than than didn't. Understood. Understood. Yeah. I think now though with this run, I think it's fair to start having expectations for her. Maybe weren't there before. You know, a little bit of getting out of that honeymoon phase, at least for the next short while. Mm-hmm. Like we'd like to see her back this up with good clay results the rest of the way. Oh for sure. Good just meaning like, you know, third round of the French would be totally worth it. But short of that, unless she loses to a big, big player, I think you'd say Oh, a little disappointing. Yeah, that's, that's probably about right. She's earned the privilege of pressure to uh, flip a, a quote. That is, yeah, that's basically true. I mean, it's, um, you're right. There is, there is kind of an expectation now. Someone who there are expectations for that are ridiculous, but he lives up to them all the time is Rafael Nadal, who won his eighth straight Barcelona title. After just barely f- failing to win his ninth straight Monte Carlo final, he lives on a little Mediterranean island in the little Mediterranean tournaments he uh, does quite well at, it seems. Did we learn anything new in Barcelona, Courtney? No. 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 Uh, what? I mean, he didn't drop a set. He dropped two bagel sets. One on Milos Raonic and the other, I believe, on Ramos. That's right. Yeah, Ramos. Yeah, so that was pretty darn good. He's just very good on clay. He's a pretty good clay core player. He's as, pretty as they darn go, good. As they go, yeah, he's one of the better you ones. You know, I don't like to like exaggerate, but no. he's all right. It's not bad. He's all right. So we found that out again. He lifted up that ginormously awkward, heavy looking trophy too for big. the eighth time. Too big. Too big. Some, some of these tournaments that are like the secondary ones really seem to feel like they're compensating for something with their trophies. I mean, Queens is the one that most comes to mind. Queens Club. Oh, Queens is ridiculous. It's, which is way bigger than the Wimbledon trophy. Yeah. And then Barcelona has a huge one. Just like, I don't know what they're trying to prove here. <laughs> I will say, I think the one interesting story really from Barcelona results wise is Ferrer losing in the first round again after also yes. losing early at Indian Wells and pulling out of Monte Carlo. He seems to be well, trying to give Rafa. You're skipping a top over seat. his final. I am. In I'm Miami. cherry picking. He made a final in Miami. He didn't beat anyone in particular on the way there. <laughs> Having said that, what do do you think that Ferrer's days in the top five or even top ten could be numbered with his recent form here? Losing no. first round in Barcelona, he should not do that. No, he shouldn't be losing first round in Barcelona to Dmitry Tursunov. No. And losing, mind you, in three sets. And the last set, he lost six one. 
Yeah, that is, is that? not David what Foyer. Is that? that is, yeah. He said, I mean, he said it was one of his worst performances. So, you know, I mean, it's his fir- that was his first match on clay. You give him a pass. If he doesn't win this week in Estoril, right? Is he playing Estoril? Yeah. Del Potro pulled out and he took a wild card into Estoril. Okay. So if he doesn't win Estoril, then yes, that's kind of a bit. Then we start maybe sounding the alarms. But no, I mean, I don't think that there's anything to really be freaked out about by the way i will be referring to estrel now as the vowels because they changed yeah. the name to some weird thing that's like spelled i'm not even gonna try to say it out loud o-e-i-r-a-s so i'll just call it the vowels the same way i call uh Schertogenbosch the apostrophe i mean just c- certain things you just look at and you just come up with your own answer fair it's just, it's just always going to be Estrel to me. So Yeah, that's also good. They didn't move locations, did they? They just changed the name no, of the place? Like, it's uh, just a complete rebranding. Yeah, like Carlsbad in San Diego. Right. Yeah. One of the other things that the bigger result, I think, ATP-wise for me, that's sort of amusing that it came at the same time as Rafa's title, was Lukas Russell winning his first ATP title at the 250 this week in Bucharest. Uh, Russell played really, really well. He really rolled to the title. I don't think he dropped a set. He beat Guillermo Garcia Lopez in the final. Didn't drop a set the whole way. Moves up to be number 34, 35, I believe, this week. And he will, looks like he's probably going to be seated then for the French Open and or Wimbledon. After really not following up the Nadal win at Wimbledon last year with much at all. Is Lucas Russell here to stay, Courtney? What do we make of him kind of solidifying this now? Um, I don't know, Ben. I think that, um, I mean, I think it was a great run. I think that um, it was made even more poignant by the fact that his father passed away just a yeah. week and a half ago. So, I mean, he dedicated the win to him. So for him to be able to kind of control his emotions and, and, and put together a title run like that, beating some some big names, I mean, for him, was great. His road was Simone, Troisky, um, Seppi. Yeah, yeah, so those are those are three pretty big names, especially on clay. I mean, beating he did yeah. actually drop a set to Seppi. Um, so he did oh, he did lose okay. a set there. But yeah, and then he beat Gilles Moller in the other match that we haven't mentioned yet. So I mean, solid draw for a two fifty that he went through. And mm-hmm. it just it seems like he's one to watch now. He's has a game where if he's putting up those kind of score lines, it must mean he's playing well consistently mm-hmm. to do that in through back to back matches. I mean, he dropped in his final in the quarterfinals semifinals and final he dropped a combined 14 games in those three yes. matches so solid play. he he, he rolled lucas rochel rolled he did he did love to see him in another big match another match at a big tournament against a big player just to see what he does especially if it's nadal or something having a re- that's like the opposite of isner mahout for me I want, mm-hmm. I want, I think they both, well, I think Nadal definitely wants another look at Russell. Sure. Yeah, I just think it'd be cool. But yeah, no, I mean, I don't, uh, I'm reading too much into the, res- the Russell result quite yet. So still kind of wait and see, because given just the, the heightened kind of emotional situation, it, it it's very possible that it was kind of one of those lightning in a bottle type things. And, and he hasn't really scored any big any big win, a single big notable win since beating Rafa last year. So, so we'll see. I mean, I'd like, would absolutely love for Lucas Russell to be a thing. I, if he could play the way that he played, that one fateful night under uh, under the center court roof, he would be one of the most like exciting players. Oh yeah, out there. And that's I think why mm-hmm. at least I and maybe we, you know, sort of follow Russell or pay attention to him. Same with same thing with Golbez is because he is 
one of these players who's shown that fearlessness, that ability to challenge the top guys and not feel deferential. And that's missing mm-hmm. in a lot of uh, the other guys on the tour, it seems like, when they come to these big stages and those big moments. That's why we're talking about the results of an ATP Clay 250, which is, if you listen to the show before, not usually our normal mm-hmm. topic of conversation. Normally, Bucharest would not get much mention from us, but... Uh, Right. This, but, but, this, I think, was yeah. interesting, this win. This could this could be signaling something, maybe. Could, could. The fourth and final tournament this week, just to round it out, we can't leave out Frank. <laughs> of course not. Um, we never want to leave out Frank. Our girl, our girl Frank won the uh, WTA tournament in Marrakesh uh, pretty surprisingly because she's had an absolutely terrible 2013. And this title makes it marginally better. Winning in Morocco, beating... A very pouty-looking Lourdes Dominguez-Lino in the final. <laughs> yeah, good for her. Good for Frank. Do we still think that title will mean anything to her going forward? Give her any spark? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll it'll definitely give her a spark. Probably the spark that she needs, especially going into her, effectively, her home tournament in Rome. Uh, and then, obviously, into Paris for the French. But, you know, I mean, that that was a pretty darn weak field that, that she, she made her way through. But, you know, hopefully it does. I mean, I, I would love to see Francesca Schivone seated at the French. I think that that would just be the right way. If it is her, if it is her last hurrah, you don't want her going out on court eight, you know, or somebody. Right, exactly. Give her a seed and um, give her a chance to kind of, you know, make a third or fourth round if she can. And so, you know, Schiavone is a very much a confidence player. Oh, yeah. So, you know, this could be it. But she's also not delusional. I don't ever think Francesca is. So I don't think that she's going to be like reading into this result too much. One wouldn't think so, no. Yeah. Yeah. So that was our wrap of the week. That was exhaustive. I understand why we don't do that more often. (laughs) Very true. This is why we have to leave off the ATP 250s and the WTA INTLs. Not for us. We dip our toes in every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, it was a pretty... Stuttgart was really, you know, the headliner, but nothing of huge note happened at Stuttgart until the end when Maria won. Yeah. So it just kind of felt like, generally speaking, last week, same with Barcelona, that last week was was kind of an off week. Yeah. Not off like bad, but just like it felt like a a week off. (laughs) Like, you know, you didn't really have to pay attention too hard mentioning stuttgart once more one question we got from curtis um who's a devoted on ivanovich fan as you may be aware courtney um he asked if we should read anything into anna's stuttgart results uh winning making quarters uh beating petrova and then having a couple other fed cup results before that which are also held at the stuttgart venue is anna back or is it same old same old uh i don't really know what is anna back referring to because, I mean... Is she going to be a relevant person to talk about winning big tournaments? That's what that means. No. Okay, I didn't think so. No, I mean, I, she hasn't... I mean, she might be, but, you know, she hasn't really shown me anything to to really show that she can. I mean, if anything, she's shown the opposite. She's shown that... Maybe she might be able to win. She might be able to win like a like a mid level tournament or maybe a non premier like a non top premier level tournament. Uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. But a big tournament where, you know, eight of the top ten are there, she's going to get stopped at the quarters, like, every single time, I think. Results-wise, there's not much difference between her and, like, Roberta Vinci. Right. Yeah. So, right. it's interesting ceiling that she's developed now. Yeah, it just, I really just don't see it. I mean, she, you know, once again, got really close against Sharapova, played her well, 
generally, although obviously could have played much better. She just was having a horrible just kind of serving day. Ivanovich having a bad serving day? Yeah, shocker, right? So yeah, you know, I I just, I don't see enough improvement to really show that, that she can break through and kind of flip those, those matches around. Uh, quite yet. I mean, the, the the win over Kerber during Fed Cup was great. I thought that that was a big win for her. But I don't think that any of us thinks that Kerber is like a threat. I mean, she's like solid. Yeah. But she's beatable. Yeah. So Anna needs to show that she can beat or come close to beating the unbeatables, and and then we can talk. It's one of those things. If she comes up with a big result in Rome, or big semifinals or final type big, or beating a top four player, or even a top three player, really, if she does that. Then we can look back on this and say there were signs, but as of yet, there's not enough. Right. Not enough. The big news story of the day, in sports world anyway, was about Jason Collins, a current free agent who most recently played with the Washington Wizards, the 12-year NBA veteran and Stanford grad, coming out as gay, becoming the first active Big Four League uh, male athlete to come out as such and so we thought we'd talk about that as it relates to tennis courtney yeah what do you, what do you make essentially of what collins did in the sports world and uh what the tennis world should look at that as as it relates to us yeah how does how does how does jason collins relate to tennis yeah i mean obviously it was uh it's tremendous news um it's it's a brave i don't care what people want to argue about the definition of brave or when the word hero should be used or whatever but i think it was a brave move Mm -hmm. um from um from him very courageous to kind of come out the way that he did and and it wasn't like this was a singular interview in like a newspaper or you know i mean this was i mean i don't know if anybody's like checked out si sports illustrated.com today this isn't a plug this is i'm going somewhere with this um but it, you know it was just an entire package revolving around him mm-hmm. i mean looking at his decision to come out from every possible angle there was the open letter by him there were two separate um posts written by editors about the behind the scenes how the um how si got the exclusive how it was put together or things like that there's you know uh, a sidebar with Mar- Martina Navratilova. There's an, a bunch of different like analyses. And Martinez and is really good. If you look for yeah, Martinez one. is amazing as as one would expect. So he really kind of came out like came out like this is like bang the gong like you know kind of moment. And so it's been a, it's been fun to kind of sit back and in some ways just see people's reactions. And you and I were kind of just talking about how on some level there is a bit of a reaction. I think it, even I don't well I don't know I don't know if it's limited to a certain age group but to some people who are kind of like oh has this not happened before yeah you know which is like somewhat heartening I, I think, think it's that, really heartening that people yeah don't I mean being gay in the world is not seen as an anomaly now so why shouldn't right. it have already happened among the I don't know over a thousand people who are currently active in the NFL baseball NHL don't know the exact numbers but there's a lot of them no reason Mm -hmm. it shouldn't have happened before so it's 2013 it's overdue I think it's fair to say and actually because of that sort of um media explosion that's actually a big reason why I'm surprised it hasn't happened before because there's a huge benefit for marketing and becoming a known name of being the first one because Mm -hmm. Jason Collins for those of you haven't heard of him before today which should be everybody Pretty much, because really he was not that big a deal in, as an NBA player recently anyway. Yeah, I mean, he got all this attention and it's now, you know, in the history book, so to speak. 
um, if they still make books in the future. And uh, yeah, I think that it's an interesting moment. I don't know if this, the floodgates will open or not, or if this will make it easier, or, or what. People maybe didn't want to be first, didn't want all the attention, some people. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. And uh, to make it more tennis-specific, it'll be interesting to see if anyone on the uh, ATP, or even more prominent WTAers, decide to follow suit because of this. Yeah, I mean, I was... It was funny because I, you know, the the contrast between the WTA and ATP was really made quite stark, especially today, because Collins made it a point to really celebrate Martina Navratilova as being a, a role model for him in terms of having the courage to come out during your career, during, you know, and, and to be prepared to deal with and have the courage to be prepared to deal with the, the backlash. Billie Jean King's name also came up as well to, you know, prominent tennis players who, who were out. And, you know, we don't, we've never had that on the ATP side. No. There's yet to be a male player who is, who has come out publicly while he was active. And I'm not even sure anyone's out. Yeah, um, I don't think so. Right? Like actually out? No, n- I mean, no. Like I, post-career? I don't right, think not, so. Right, not think like, still... you know, Hey, look at me! I'm out over here, right. kind of thing. Right. Definitely not right. that. Right. Definitely have not had that. Whether other people are and people know and hasn't been is different. Hasn't been confirmed. It's different. Yeah. Right. Right. So so yeah. I mean, it, it's an it's it's tough. You know, it, when I look at it, I mean, and there come there come mo- there are little moments where it humors me how just generally accepted it just is on the WTA tour. Yeah. You and I were at a tournament once when like Ben and I were just walking back from watching a match on an outer court back to the media center mm-hmm. and a player had just won a match and they were hopping into the the golf cart and they were like ecstatic and like Ben and I were just talking about something <laughs> and then next thing you know like she leans over and kisses the other girl that's in the the back of the golf cart and like I think Ben and I both are kind of like oh okay and we just carried on our that? conversation yeah this is, I mean, this is, you know, it's just, it's just what it is. And this was not another player. This is not a doubles team. We should point out this was a player and a, and a girlfriend. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, right. Yeah. But, but I just remember, I was, I just remember that so vividly happening, happening because you and I were just kind of both walking and talking, and we saw it, and we both kind of paused because we're like, I think I kind of paused at first, and then we both kind of just kind of shot each other a look and kind of smiled and kept walking, and there was no discussion of it there because you wouldn't, you wouldn't discuss it even it's if it's not because like, it's if, not a new phenomenon. I mean, we are we not. are aware that lesbians exist on the WTA tour, and in greater numbers, and that example showed us probably in greater numbers than we know, and right, yeah. and a lot of them we just don't care about. Like you know, if a player who is one of the people who we you know pick on take a number. And sort of grown. If someone ranked in the '80s who's a lesbian, who cares? Why does it matter? Well, and, we we don't care who they're dating. Period. So why should it matter what gender that person is? Yeah, and I was thinking about that specific phenomenon within tennis as being a reason why there aren't more people out, both on the WTA and the ATP side, which is that it is an individual sport. You kind of do your own thing. You're not associated with a team. Yeah. There isn't a beat writer. If you're like ranked number, even if you're ranked like top 20, but you're from like an obscure country, there's no beat writer following you around on a weekly basis who's like asking you about your life and things like that. And so it's just easier to hide and not necessarily hide in an active way, like where you're concealing yourself. Right, because it has to be be an active decision to come out for the most part under most circumstances. I mean, what? Jason Collins did today was very much an active decision. 
Um, right. It wasn't just anyone asking, waiting for someone to ask him if he was gay. You know, it's had to he had to make that choice because he, we aren't going around opening press conferences with, you know, so player, you gay, right? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I could tell. Yeah. In, in fact, yeah. it's a bit of the flip. I I think you've probably felt this way too. It sometimes with press conferences, been with WTA players, where especially in foreign countries, I don't know, but they get asked questions about boys. Yeah. And about who's the cute boys and who's your favorite actor and like asking like you know from a hetero heteronormative perspective yes right of you know who do you think is hot and obviously it's a guy so give us names you know and with and there are moments where i get i just kind of like get really cringe i get i kind of want to sink down under my desk and just be like oh that's not the person to ask that of you know so but you know if you just kind of the point is within the wta and probably within the atp as well you can just live your life yeah no, exactly. That's and thing. not be under the spotlight if you are, if you satisfy a certain, you know, number of check marks, which is you're not super high ranked, you're not super high profile, and you don't, nobody really cares about you. Yeah. In which case, coming out is kind of weird. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> almost because it's like if number 87 from, you know, I don't know, Romania wanted to come Romania, out, Romania or Bolivia yeah. comes out, it's like, all right. <laughs> <To who? laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, pretty much. No one, no one so. would really care. And yeah. I think that's probably so. a good thing. I think that's what you want yeah. it, the world to be like at some point. You want it to be a non-event. And it not, it, yeah, just not to be an event. And uh, today was definitely an event. And I don't think we yes. need many more of these necessarily. Maybe if someone's super high profile, maybe it will merit something. But it, I think this is, you know, a rite of passage sort of thing for the sports world. Hopefully, okay, we got one, and now the rest of you can go along your way. I think the most important thing is that you need the person to come out so that there's a comp- so that okay, let's have the conversation. Yeah, right. Because because I if mean, you're not coming out, you're saying I don't want to have this conversation. Right, and you're not, and and everybody else, like your teammates, organization, fans, aren't confronted with it. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like if you if you don't come out, then we can all just pretend we live in this hetero normative sports universe in america where everybody is masculine and full of testosterone and you know goes and shoots baskets and then goes home and you know has sex with a lot of ladies yeah no that's that's the thing that's why it was a big deal when a guy finally came out i mean you talk about all the women who have in the past navratilova king um stubbs moresmo whatever Mm -hmm. Um, but then having a guy finally do it. And let's talk about that from the from tennis perspective. I mean, what has stopped an ATP or from doing it? If all these women have done it, why not a guy yet? I think it's really hard because I think that, first of all, I mean, obviously, I don't know if I need to say it, but I mean, the difference between kind of being a lesbian playing sports versus being gay and playing sports are like two different things because sports are considered a masculine endeavor exactly. and yeah. lesbians are considered to be, more I mean, the stereotype is, is, is that it's a more masculine, you know, you're more masculine. So it makes sense that Brit- like Brittany Griner came out like last week and everybody's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> like, how we, you know, and she has more rate name recognition right now than Jason Collins. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, whereas with men, it obviously flips the script and, and, um, you know, because gays are con- stereotyped as being soft. And I think Jason Collins in his piece for SI really kind of focused on that quite a bit that, that he's kind of, he's seven feet tall. He's a big muscular dude. he, is known in the NBA as being a guy who's very physical, fouls a lot, um, gets in the lane, takes blocks and uh, blocks and charges. So, 
kind of being like, I'm not the gay stereotype. I'm not right, soft. exactly. And I, I think that's I think for people who you know care about breaking stereotypes, that's the kind of person who you want to be uh, mm-hmm. a leader on it. I guess. Yeah. But the thing is, is that within ATP is that it's, it's a locker room, but you're not a team. Mm -hmm. So it's a joint locker. So like at least within team sports, if you come out and you have the full support of your organization and meaning your teammates, the fans, the, the, the brass, everything, they can kind of support you and create this cocoon uh, and it's in their best interest to do so to kind of help you with that transition and kind of make it easier. Whereas I think that in tennis, like you don't have that. You're like in this locker room with all of your competition. It's a lonely place. Tennis is a lonely place generally. Mm-hmm. And to make, to come out and then to further isolate yourself. I feel like that's just like so many like blocks. It's a lot. And also, and also we should point out that men's tennis right now is a uh, very European and they are in a lot of ways probably behind in a lot of the countries on where it is in the u.s in terms of masculinity and mm-hmm. you know gayness and how those two relate in terms of stereotypes and you saw all the people who were talking about supporting jason collins today and they were pretty much all american i mean obviously he's an american player it's an american story to a large degree but the europeans i think were men anyway were completely silent on it yeah, it's 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 not going to be easy. I, I I think that we are a ways away from getting an ATP player to come out while he's still playing. Yeah, I don't. It only takes one. It only yeah, it just it only takes one, but it's gonna be. It's I don't know. I just I don't. I think it's gonna be a while. We should we should call our our buddy uh, Matthew Barbaran and have him speculate on this <laughs> because oh uh, can we? <laughs> because anyone who's he's, he's a French tennis writer who's also a student and he we talked to him in istanbul and he is he's fairly convinced that probably like i don't know 19 <laughs> in the top 20 are gay and he's yeah. fighting for that 20th person too and very he very really passionate is. arguments for this with you know explanations for each person so i think i think that he could have some detective work to do the best thing is to just ask Mathieu, like who do you think is gay on the atp and then just sit back and watch it happen. <laughs> like he will break it down and it's just the most entertainment. I, it's just the best. I loved it. Pretty great. From Courtney Massey, ask us, which do you consider the best interview you've done so far? Have you ever had any awkward interview moments? And TJC05 asks us a similar question after a heated press conference with Jim Beheim at March Madness asked us, um, have we had you know, best worst presser moment. So I want to go through that a little bit, a little behind the scenes on memorable moments, for better or worse, uh, <laughs> in the press room with players. Sure. What do you got? What you got? Let's see. I mean, I guess the best interview I've ever done in terms of a one-on-one. Let's I do suppose. one-on-one first, sure. Yeah, so so one-on-one, yeah, it was probably Pekovich. I mean, obviously our podcast was I thought was really great, but yeah, even before good. then um, in Miami two years ago, I guess, mm-hmm. did a one-on-one with her and it was just you know, a 10 minute, 10, 15 minute thing. And, you know, it didn't necessarily yield a ton of, oh no, actually it did. Um, it was the year that she played doubles with Anna and they had that little on-court bet thing. And, you know, I was the only one, like kind of the only reporter in the press room that was going out and watching their matches. You were the only one watching Ivanovich doubles, Courtney? I know. So weird. Really? I know. Cray. But yeah, so I was the only one that had seen them kind of exchange the cash on court and stuff like that. So I got to ask her about that. And, um, and then we just kind of started talking about music and, and festivals and 
things like that. And it was like a, a good interview where you kind of, this is the first time that I'd really spoken with her, you know, one-on-one. And so to kind of establish a rapport, to feel like you have a connection with a player, to feel like that player likes you as well. I mean, that, that goes a long way down the road Yeah. in terms of being able to get quotes and, and, and get requests answered and things like that. And then on top of that, it was just enjoyable, you know, it was just like a fun 15 minutes and like, you know, I, I think Ben was there when um, Petkovic and I were speaking before the before or after the podcast that we did. And she remembered that interview because she was like, you're not going to Miami. And I was like, no. And she's like, that's too bad. Like, that's where we bonded. Like you and me it was in Miami two years ago. And I was like, totally blown away that she remembered. Yeah. Part of that is just Petco being Petco. And yeah. she just is. Thoughtful. Because you'll have, you'll have players who you introduce yourself to several times. And they be like a first time meeting every time for yep. them sometimes yep. others not as much and for us probably less and less and more and more we're seen and yeah. read i guess but mm-hmm. for yeah so it's always good when they remember you and that's uh, a pretty nice takeaway from that yeah. so that was pit. probably that was probably my best one how about you ben best one i was trying to think i don't really have one that stands out hugely recency bias i like the one that i did with gulbis and indy wells gulbis mm-hmm. is you know just a fun guy who's not going to flop too much on interviews if you give him anything i like that one so i wasn't originally planning on doing it publishing it as like a q a format but i wound up doing that just because i thought the whole thing was pretty solid even if it did take a long time to transcribe um and then other ones i had a really early one i did back when i wrote for the daily forehand blog with thomas burdich that i thought went pretty well where, you know, man, should talk a lot of random smack about Nicole Vitasova and stuff. And it was just like, <laughs> he was very relaxed. And it was like in this like sort of secluded room in the bottom of the stadium. And there was like no tour rep standing by mm-hmm. hovering over. And that can make a big difference in terms of just, you know, that the can. atmosphere of it chilling out. And ATP, I will say, is usually a little bit less hovery than WTA can be sometimes. But WTA is also much better at setting up interviews. So it's a trade-off. Yeah, so those were those are two that come to mind. I've had a lot of one-on-ones with Marion Bartola that I thought have been very good over time um she's just a very sort of intense but very thoughtful talker and so those are always um you always feel like you get something pretty good out of out of her so several bartoli interviews um would probably be my pick so no one that immediately jumps to mind but yeah that's also because ben like interviews players more than i do like i I don't really have like a huge like basket full of like interviews to have to pick through like they're i can count them all so to credit to you ben Oh, thank you. Well, it's, I mean, you also have your own way of making your basket work. <laughs> so awkward ones or bad ones, yeah. You go first. Oh, man. Mm, I think it would have to be the Bryan Brothers. Okay. Um, In Cincinnati last year, because it just, it was an interview that was awesome in many ways and went horribly wrong in a lot of ways as well. So I had, I had, I wanted to interview the Bryan Brothers. I was writing a story about mixed doubles for USA Today. So I need to get some quotes with them and this was obviously right after the Olympics. Yeah. And I submitted my request and hadn't really heard back and heard back very like last minute. It was literally like, hey, like the Bryans will be here, like at, at this location in five minutes. And it was pouring rain that day. And I misunderstood the location. I thought that they meant that they were telling me to show up at the ESPN desk, like the the TV desk. Uh-huh. Um, where they were filming. So I run out there. I'm like soaked in, I'm soaked in rain and like, there's no one there. And meanwhile, I'm emailing, I think, uh, Sharko at the time. I'm like, you know, I, I'm here. I don't see anything. I'm going to run back. And so I ran back and it turns out that they wa- actually wanted me to stand near the TV interview room, which was like right yeah. next to the press conference room. 
So I was like, okay. So I ran up there and I just was like out of breath and I was kind of soaked and whatever. And luckily got there before the Bryans were done with their TV interview. And then they came out and they were like, they had their, um, their gold medals mm-hmm. um, with them. They carry those things everywhere with them. They, especially right then they were. So like, you know, I'm just kind of making small chat tra- small talk with them. And they're like, they're talking about it. And they're like, here, hold it. So like, they like literally shoved it into my hand. And I was like, like I was holding a gold medal. And I kind of like in that moment, completely freaked out. <laughs> like yeah. in my head, I was like, holy shit. Um, and they're like, yeah, like, let's take a picture with it. So they like, and all this was happening. And I wasn't really saying anything. I just was like, what? And so they put the gold medal on me and like got somebody to take a picture on my phone and all this. And then we were just going to do like the five minute interview, like right there in the hallway. And I was, I had been using my Blackberry as my recorder. So I hit it and we're doing the interview and I'm kind of flustered and I'm not really paying attention. Interview's done. Great. Good quotes. They leave. And I look at my phone and it only recorded like 20 seconds of the interview. Like at some point I hit a button or something and it stopped. So it was kind of, I mean, luckily I was able to scramble and scratch something together, but it was like complete fail across the board. And I just remember feeling completely flustered after it, just being like, what the heck just happened? I don't understand. My awkward answer is going to be the same sort of thing, a recorder malfunction thing. It's also in Cincinnati a few years ago with Daniela Hantukova. And I think it's the only time I've ever done a one-on-one with her, or maybe even been in general press with her, because I haven't been in that many tournaments where she's wound up doing well. Probably that's a coincidence, I think. And I was doing this interview with her talking about when she was reenacting Gladiator in the back of one of those French Open cars or something. And it was going, she was like laughing a lot. It was going really well. And I looked down at my recorder and it said like memory full stopping. I was like, oh. So I ended it like after two and a half minutes. And she was very surprised. As with WTRF. She was like, oh, that's it. I was like, yeah, that's it. Sorry. Bye-bye. So I had to let that, let that fish go. And so that was, that was frustrating. Um, wasn't really necessarily that awkward um, in terms of I mean, there have been ones that awkward. <laughs> you've had awkward. For... You've had quite a few awkward ones that I've been. I sure... Okay. Well, in terms of for pressers. No, just like kind of awkward moments between you and a player. Okay. Like what? I'm curious. Oh, like, um, God, you and Thomas and the Rochel comment. Oh yeah. Well, that, that's, that's just, I don't know. That was, no, I don't not saying that it's awkward to you, but I just remember like, like reading back or being in press conferences where I was like, Oh, this could be awkward, but I know that I mean, Ben's yeah, not I've, thinking it's awkward. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a, that's a press conference one. I will say one other thing on the interview, like talking to someone who's done things or said things you disagreed with about that mm-hmm. stuff. I've been interviewed like Margaret Court about gay marriage stuff and interviewed, you know, Odesnik about steroids and tennis and stuff. And so those are a different level of awkward. You just sort of have to, you know, sort of stay in a reportery zone the whole time and right. not you have to fight. engage you have to, yeah exactly you have to so. like force your way through those and then you know and, and to me the most awkward press the awkward interviews or press conference moments are always with players who i've written something critical about i know that they know that i've written that thing and it's yeah. you know it's it becomes it becomes personal from their perspective yeah and I'm, I suppose, a bit sensitive to that because I kind of get it. Like, if I was in their situation, I'd probably be pissed at me too. Oh, sure. But you're kind of in a situation where it's kind of like, I well, I have to press forward because this is my job and this is what yeah. I'm doing. And so certain players are better about it. Other players are really, really crappy about it. And you just kind of got to go with the flow. Yeah. Especially in post-loss pressers, when those come up, you'll see mm-hmm. um, players get way more defensive, way more, you know, they can't be hostile or shut down or sarcastic and will call you out for things that, you know, are really benign, you know, they can just sort of, I don't know, shut down in ways that you're 
make it uncomfortable. Obviously, Andy Roddick was a king of that, for better or for worse, for in terms of keeping reporters accountable and on their toes during pressers. I'm sure I asked him something stupid at some point that he sort of, you know, made sarc- some sarcastic remark about, but I sort of saw it as, you know, a rite of passage at the time, I'm sure. Although, yeah, like the Russell thing, the verdict, I don't know if we ever talked about this on the show, have we? I don't know. It's sort of a, a minor tennis meme at this point, but when I asked, when I was very impressed with Burdich's performance and mentioned him in the same breath as Lucas Russell Wimbledon saying, the Czech guys have a lot of big wins, and he, you know, suddenly started getting unbelievably offended that I'd talked about Russell. I mean, that was just surprising more than anything. And I knew immediately how funny it was and how people were going to, like, be, you know, right. this was ridiculous. But it's I like one see of those, his reaction. Yeah, because it's one of those situations where, like, you know, generally speaking, we're not used to there being a dialogue in press. Yeah. In other words, like, I ask a question, you answer it. I ask a question, you answer it. Like, that's the rhythm. So when the player breaks that rhythm... And asks you a question. And asks something. you a question, it's very... You can get very flustered. I mean, it's happened it to me be. as well, where I'm like, yeah. wait, what? But I also but I also a lot of times know that that's when things are going to get to be big press conference moments. I mean, I was the one who asked Sharapova the thing that wound up leading to, you know, isn't she back in Poland already? Right, the oh. Oh, oh. Yeah, and asked, you know, Sanga about... Uh, why women lose more, and he started talking about hormones and stuff. That's all Ben, baby. And, th- and that one, I mean, you just kind of have to, like, you know, sort of just, like, let the ball keep rolling with them a yeah. lot of times and let, let them keep talking and see what they have to say about this because If you don't you ask never the know. question, you'd never know. And this is the thing that I will generally say about, like, you know, because sometimes people like to armchair quarterback press conferences, right? So fans will get, you know, obviously the press conference transcripts and they'll read it and be like, what are these stupid questions? I can't believe these questions are being asked. And on some level, I totally understand that. But at the same time, having been in press conferences where I think the exact same thing, where somebody asks a question and in my head, I'm like, God, that is the dumbest question ever. And it gets an amazing answer. It happens. Yeah. It happens. And so I've, I'm definitely one who has moved away from that to where I'm very much like, you know what? You never know what's going to happen if you ask a question. Just ask a question. The bad question, I, I think there is such a thing as a bad question, though. I mean, bad questions are ones the player asks, answers every single press conference. They Correct. Give a routine answer. Like if you asked Wozniacki about why she hasn't won a slam yet or something, you're not going to get any good answer on that. Repetitive but, questions are bad questions. Yeah, repetitive but, questions. But an out of left field question isn't necessarily bad. Right. I don't think so. Right. And, you know, maybe some, the player you know, shuts you down and the player shoots you a stink eye and, you know, the agent pulls you aside afterwards and it's like, why the hell would you ask that? But, you know, sometimes they just kind of roll with it. And those are the moments that people remember, not questions about like you hit, you know, that forehand at 30, 40 that hit the net. How difficult was that for you? Yeah. Nobody those remembers. Are, those that are questions question. that unless you're using them in your story and they were like a really crucial turning point in the match, like, oh, why'd you hit this shot? What about that point? Those are, you know, often the ones that wind up being the biggest waste of everybody's time. Right. But they have to be asked. Yeah. They absolutely have to be asked for wire. So, you know, I mean, I think that people could kind of be a bit more understanding. I think that, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I can't think of them off the top of my head. I mean, there are, you're right. There are bad questions and there are moments where, to me, bad questions are the ones that kill a press conference. Right. That's what a bad question is. In other words, it's not just like what the question actually is, but like, when it's asked, the, you know, is it the beginning? Is it the end? How is it asked? How is it framed? How is it worded? There's so much nuance involved in, exactly. in constructing a question that people who are newer to it or don't do tennis as much or don't know the personalities involved, if one of them asks a bad first question in a press conference, it can totally derail it and it yeah, can't be recovered. I, I and certain I'm... players are more apt to being derailed than others, for sure. And you have to know who those players are. Right. I mean, I, I've 
remember it was, I think it was Wozniak. He had, I guess, lost in the final of Miami that year that I was in Miami. Quarter, it must have been. Uh, quarterfinal, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pekovic. Whatever it was. Yeah. To Pekovic. And she came in and it was obviously kind of a significant loss at the time because I think she had some sort of win streak going. You know, it was going to be interesting. It was going to be the first time that you actually got to talk to Wozniacki after a loss in a in quite a bit of time. And the first question out of the gate was just this horrible question by a local reporter, you know, not somebody who like does the tennis beat all the time, but just like a local reporter that was like, so negative it was like it you was had like, so many unforced you had like 47 unforced errors or something blah, blah, yeah blah, it was blah. like you had 27 unforced errors on your forehand side and seven and 15 unforced errors on your backhand side like why do you think that was or like yeah. what like kind of like what do you have to say for yourself basically yeah i just remember i just remember seeing her face because she came in kind of all jolly and kind of chit-chatting with the wta rep and stuff and seemed in in pretty good spirits and then that question came out and she just shut down and no one got anything out of her for the, rest of the press conference and i just remember being so pissed because i was like way to go dude way to ruin it for everybody like there is a nuance to kind of how press conferences go and, and the rhythms of it and you know when they get disrupted that's when i get annoyed in a press conference not so much kind of like oh that's a dumb question i don't really think that too often right and if you're going to do a dumb if you're going to ask a question that's out of left field um do it near the end right for sure you'll see that a lot in australia with the uh italian journalists oh uh, i love them they're the best Ubaldo. i love i'm Count me in as an Imbaldo fan. He asks crazy, wacky questions, but they're so entertaining to yeah. see players respond to them. They're funny. See, see, and see how they handle him as a person. Exactly. Sharapova is the best. Yeah. She's the pro when it comes to handling him. They go way back. And he was saying, after he asked her, he was one who asked, finally, after a long press conference, I wasn't at, took her, them forever during the U.S. Open on the day that it came out that she and Vujicic had broken up. Yep. It took forever for anyone to ask her about that. And he finally got around to it. And afterwards, he was like saying to her, "Oh, I was so look- I was sure you were going to invite me to the wedding. It would be in Italy or something." And they get they get along. So. There are totally moments. I think that obviously every like kind of press corps has their own internal rules. Like obviously the U.S. press corps has it, kind of unwritten rules in terms of how you conduct yourself in press and yeah. British press obviously have their own and French and yeah. German and whatever. And yeah. there are just moments where like because I know that like U.S. and Brit press are probably the strictest. Probably U.S. press I think is actually one of the strictest way stricter than british press I think, yeah i think so in terms of what is appropriate what's inappropriate and these are things that you just learn as you kind of are in the room a lot but there are definitely those moments where especially when you're at an international tournament and there's joint media and there's just an international room where you're just like thank god there's foreign press here who don't give a shit and they will ask all the questions that i wish i could ask but i can't and they and you get those kind of entertaining moments and the italians are are famous for it they're so good for it. they're so good for it and the other thing to you that i've seen people use is local press so yeah. sometimes when you're traveling and you have like local press and they don't they're they just want a tabloid thing and they're not even concerned about you know establishing a relationship with the player or anything like that and i mean yeah caroline comes to charleston and immediately the charleston reporters are going to ask her solely about rory yep basically and that's fine and you know because that stuff we're going to use it too but I don't want to be the person that's constantly asking her about Rory. <laughs> like, you have to, you have to see else. her again. Yeah. yeah, I have to see her again. And it's like, oh, you're the one that asks about Rory all the time. It's like, oh, okay. So it's helpful. Learning how to play the room. There's a more in-depth question, answer to that question than we thought, but that's okay. Cool. Now we're going to bring back our Take a Number segment, which is popular and hopefully missed by all. Absence has made the heart grow fonder for random numbers, hopefully, Courtney. 
Totally. Pick a number between one and hundred using a random number generator, and talk about the man and woman who correspond to those rank to that number on the ATP and WTA ranking. So I'm gonna hit the button, and our number that pops out is right down the middle again, fifty-two. Courtney, tell us about the lady who we have fifty-two, who you tell me is a repeat. Yes, a repeat offender. Oh. I guess. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, number 52, we have one of the... Gosh, how many Romanians are in the top 100 now? I feel like it's got to be at, like something like, like yeah, five like or six. Yeah, it's like four or five, yeah. A lot. Yeah. So she's one of those. She pulled off a very big upset at the U.S. Open last year, beating Caroline Wozniacki uh-huh. uh, in the first round. First round? Second round? First round. First, first round. First round. Two yeah. and two. For Bigu. Yeah. For Begu, I beggo of you. Yes, Arena Camellia So we Begu. did her a while ago, so we're going to pick a new number because we don't do repeats. And it's not someone like there's a lot of new material on her per se. She's still Arena Camellia Begu. The Begu's. guy who she stood up to this dance, her dance partner, not too sad we don't have to talk about. I just don't know that much about this guy. Um, I do know that he is one of the rare blonde Spaniards. And his name is Daniel Jimeno Traver. He's number 52. I mean, who knew that guy was 52? I didn't. I did not know that. I think he was top 50 recently, and I was really confused by that. Yeah, we don't. I think he must make all of his earnings in challengers. If you look at his photo, he looks nothing like a challenger. He looks like a sorry. Looks nothing like a Spaniard. He looks like a you know chubby German guy. He always cracks me up because he has kind of the same body type as Fabio Fognini. Okay. So he always looks like his legs are just a little bit short on the shorter side and I always notice this about him. That and the fact that he just doesn't look Spanish to me. Not at all. That's all we have on him. Let's just spin the wheel again. Um, Our new number that comes out is (laughs) boldly number 57. This thing's really being... (laughs) One of these days we'll get a top Uh, 10 player. This person's not much better. Courtney, is 57 a repeat for us on the Lumen side? (laughs) Are you hoping that that it is? is. (laughs) It is not, but but I feel like this, that number 57 on the WTA side will outweigh your sadness about the number okay. 57. Do you want me to give the ATP, ATP guy side. first then? Yes, yes. ATP let's, guy let's save first the best for last. Is a countryman of Jimeno Traver. It is Albert Ramos. Ah. Yeah. The owl. He does look like an owl. He looks like an owl. Yeah. Okay. That's the big thing. He looks like an owl and he's actually had a pretty good, you know, last year. Yeah, he has. But who's the, who's the stance for before we get started on him? Who is his uh, lady at 57? Heinz lady, as they say. His lady friend at number 57 is one of the silent H's. <sighs> okay. Pick which which one do you think it is? Okay, 57 is probably Radechka. There you go. Yeah. Lucy Radechka. Oh, boy. Of the Czech Republic. Very exciting. One of Ben's faves. She's so nice. She's a nice lady. She's, she's, she's a nice lady. She's a nice lady. <laughs> like she's like 43. <laughs> nice lady. Nice lady. Okay, so let's talk briefly about Ramos. Emphasis on briefly. Alberto Ramos. I always want to call him Alberto. That's the most interesting mm-hmm. thing about him in my mind. His name is Albert, not Alberto. I mean, I just think like Spanish people should be named Alberto. If you're going to have those, you know, anyway. Yeah, he played Davis Cup singles for Spain when they lost to Canada, which tells you just how few people showed up for Spain. And yeah, he's a clay quarter, kind of a feisty, grunty, doesn't make tennis necessarily fun to watch when you watch him play in a Grand Allier's vein sort of way. And uh, that's him. I don't have much else on him. You? He looks like an owl. Uh huh. And we'll leave it at that, I guess. He looks like an owl. Oh. He like whenever I see him, I just want to go. Ooh, ooh. You should do that. Ooh, ooh. It'd be awesome if that was his grunt. That would be good, right? Oh, we need to get the ATP to slip him a memo. Who are other players 
who you wish had a specific noise as a grunt. So Burdick. What do you wish he like? He made a bird like, noise. Like <laughs> That'd be funny. It'd be great. I get behind that. Um, who else is like Marty Fish? I don't know. He's like bubbling noises or something. <laughs> well, he, he does kind of make a fish, a blowfish face when he hits the ball. He does. He does have his cheeks puffed out. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So. Marty Fish. This is not one of our more cerebral conversations on this. Show. Sam Query, like if his if his if his grunt sounded like a question. I th- okay, we're gonna leave it at that now. How <laughs> <laughs> to send this topic home? Cut, like, cut it up. Shut it down, Levin. Shut it down. Shut it down. <laughs> All right, Lucy Radeshka, or as they say in uh, Czech, uh, Russia oh, Radeshka. She uh, has a silver medal in doubles. A French Open title, both their buddy Andrei Lavashkova, the Silent H's, as they're known. Does everybody call them the Silent H's or just you, Ben? I started it, I'm pretty you sure. You started it, okay. Um, and I've seen people use that nickname when talking to me. <laughs> so I kind of think it's a thing. That's true. That's fair. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen people do it, you know, not to me, but people understand. They know my meaning of it. I have that with certain players. Yeah. Like, I think people, like, I never referred, like, on my personal account, I never refer to Lena, Lena as Lena. Yeah. I always call her Nails. Right. But... And people call her Nails now. Mm-hmm. I think I've, I probably am responsible for a few of those nicknames. I would think so. You were Ghouls. big into nicknames. Big yeah. nicknames. Ghouls. That's definitely me. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Continue. No, that's okay. Uh, well, let's talk Let's talk about Lucy Radechka, though. Okay. Lucy Radechka, um, results-wise, singles, I think this ranking is mostly based on making the semis, I think, in Madrid last year. She has a big serve, Lucy, and obviously the blue clay helped that a lot. Um, Serena won that tournament, so big servers conditions there. She's been injured a lot recently, as I'm sure you know, and so her results have slipped a lot. I think she was actually higher than this recently, and just has been struggling with health, trying to rest up, play a little less doubles. So Lavochka has been playing with some weird other people lately. She plays. She has been. She's been orphaned. She has been orphaned a bit. She's like in like doubles foster care. Yeah, it's like, like she's just getting like getting shipped around. It's like she was in a department store and went to find an adult. Yes. You know? And uh, that adult happened to be Liesl Huber, who took it on her own. Liesl. <laughs> and they they made the final of. Are they one? They made the final of uh, Charleston together. Yeah. So yeah. So. They're still going to be back together, I think, eventually. But Radechka is an interesting sort of case study, I guess, to the extent that people get interested in this, in being a doubles player who's having bigger singles singles results or wants more in singles, and how much of the doubles do you sacrifice? You know, when you're in this sort of balance of maybe one day she is on the path to become a doubles specialist, um, but not there yet, and sort of keeping the singles stream alive for now. She's a she's a she's Freddie Nielsening. Right, but with way better singles results than Freddie Nielsen. Right, right, of course, of course, yeah. So. But yeah, no, it is. It, it it's tough. Um, we talked to Radechka and Lavochkova um, in Istanbul uh-huh. uh, last year, and that's really the first, not the first time, but one of the well, the first time I had an extended conversation, I guess with with Radechka, who is much shyer than her very blonde counterpart yes you say blonde in terms of like personality more than anything <laughs> yes she's just like well Lavochka has like, much better english is a lot of it yes that's also true but uh but yeah radechka was like super nice and everything but it is it is interesting you know i mean they were the both of them you know paired up in large part obviously they're both czech and they play for the czech fed cup team and the olympics were coming up and things like that and then really committed to it and played well i mean made it to the to the world tour uh, not the world tour finals the wta championships mm-hmm. And stuff, but yeah, what you're saying is dead right. I mean, it's like her, her singles ranking now is starting to slip 
her doubles ranking, if she were to commit to doubles, would probably get her into whatever tournament she wanted to get into. Yeah. And uh, how do you kind of balance that, which is which is tough. I mean, she's still fairly young. She's 27, and you can be a doubles specialist into your mid-late 30s. Very true. So I think that it's good for her now to keep a single single. If you don't want to give up on it too early. I don't think – and I don't think – I've never heard a doubles player say I should have stuck with singles longer. I think most of them really ride out singles until they just can't anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lisa Raymond, for example, was – you know, top uh, top thirty in singles for a long time, and then it really started to slip pretty quickly for her in singles, and she mm-hmm. bailed on it only when she was out of the top hundred. It was in, I don't know if you read it, but there was a piece on on the tennis space over the weekend mm-hmm. that was a Q and A with Britain's Colin Fleming, okay. doubles specialist, mm-hmm. Flembo, and it was about kind of the economics of being a doubles player on the ATP tour, and there was a lot of lot of really interesting information in there. But one of the things that he says is that he always obviously wanted to be a singles player, and he still misses playing singles and stuff like that. But basically, because the the, the prize money and like the lower level of futures and the challengers is so low, like he couldn't yeah. make a living. No, you can't. You have to make you have to like win the player. tournament to break even yeah so he had to choose and so he's just like well i have to make a living and i can make a living as a doubles player yeah so it's one of those situations where it's like duh obviously that happens but it's an interesting thing to remember sometimes that that the the careers that that some of these guys have is not necessarily the career they would have chosen for themselves but the career they had to in order to you know especially with doubles i mean i don't think anybody picks up tennis thinking they want to be doubles first and foremost i think singles is a dream for everybody remember asking someone I think it was uh, Kujiatsova who had had a bunch of really good doubles results right before then and struggling in singles. Just asked her, you know, she said she was more focused on singles. And I said, you know, why, essentially? Mm-hmm. And she was just like, just sort of stared at me like, obviously singles is more important. Everyone knows that. So that's part of it. And Rodechka, I mean, is still a top 100 singles player. She's totally more than breaking even on singles. And she's doing fine in doubles as well. Although actually they had a pretty bad start to the year, I guess, largely because yeah. they were both dealing with injuries. Both of the H's. So, uh, yeah. But we'll be interested to see if she sticks with it and if the team sticks together. Because pronunciation-wise, they're a lot of fun to say together. So. They are. Lovachka and Radechka. Lovachka and Radechka, yeah. I learned it from you, Ben. I, I, I learned it from, I don't know, some divine source somewhere. <laughs> saying it from above. So Solid. That was number 57. Our replacement number makes me want ketchup. And yeah, that was it. We're going to close out this show with another rants and raves section of the show. And mine is about, it's about a rave, I think. I was spending a lot of time working down in a part of my house I don't usually work in. And I found my old N64 recently. And in a fit, ah. and in a fit of ADD, I started playing some Mario Tennis, which was my game of choice for quite a while, playing by myself. And I started playing the uh, the ring challenges. I don't know if you ever played <sighs> Mario Tennis. But uh, they have these things where one of them, the one I'm doing, is where you try to hit the ball through as many rings as you can in three minutes. And the rings get bigger and worth less points the more times you miss them. So you essentially want to get the highest score possible. I've been playing more and more. First, I was like breaking 400 was a good round. Then I started playing with certain characters who aren't usually my normal go-to characters, but people who are better suited for sort of hitting the right height as you want it, which is a big part of the ring challenge. And so I was playing a bunch of paratrooper, who's actually like my least favorite player in the game. But he's good at that. And got like over 500s or something. And I was looking up online. I think my, my high score that I tweeted today for him was 551 on the ring challenge. Mm-hmm. And I looked up like to see if there were any old message boards or for like N64 people showing what their uh, high scores were on this, like to see how I stacked up against the world, essentially. And there was a Guinness Book of World Records 
entry for Mario Tennis Ring Challenge, which I thought was a complete waste of the Guinness Book of World Records, first of all. But second of all, it was only 569. Huh. So I have 551 is my high right now. So I feel, and that's like a difference of like the big, the, the most rings you, the most points you can get for a ring is like five points. So I'm like four rings away from having a Guinness Book of World Record in my own name. For Mario Tennis. So now, like, my life has new purpose, and this is my one calling. I was going to say, we're this. not, yeah, we're not going to hear from you. No. Until, I will keep you posted Until this, this is done. The thing is, apparently, the person proved it by, like, sending in a video of himself breaking this record, which is what you have to yeah. do when you do these video game records. I don't know if you ever saw the documentary King of Kong about. I did. Yes. About, so, you know, there's all sorts of controversy about not rigging the system or whatever. Um, I feel like this is a less contested record. This record was set in 2002 and hasn't been touched since, I don't think. But, uh. Yeah, I feel like now I gotta set up some sort of studio to, so I can record this, so I can save it for posterity once my well, greatness finally comes. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna tell you there, there are definitely. I mean, because if you go on YouTube, you see these videos all over because there are ways to capture it via, like, you have to run. If you run it through your computer, you can actually capture, like, the the directly the Where video the game you on a play. Simulator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna say. I'm just gonna gonna point like my iPhone at the TV for the entire. Don't you have to like? It's only three minutes. It's only three minutes long. It's not like Donkey Kong where it takes like eleven hours. Okay. This is like a three minute like sort of sprint. Gotcha. So hopefully, hopefully I get this. It would mean an incredible amount to me to begin this book a full record. Hopefully they put it in the tennis section. Hmm. Uh, Tennis, comma Mario. Okay, so if it happens, you have to add that to like your Twitter bio. Oh, totally. Okay. That will be the number one like bullet point on my LinkedIn page. Right. That's like that's immediately my calling card if I hold a world I, record in Mario Tennis. I will endorse that. But yeah, I'll put it in my Twitter bio if I get this record, but just stay tuned. Know that I am trying. But know that I also know that I have a lot to do and so much anything that I do with my time that isn't playing Mario Tennis for a world record, it's a better use of my time in a lot of ways. And I might never get there. I don't know. Maybe those eighteen points are bigger than I realize. Because the fifty five fifty one was like exceptionally good score oh my gosh you are gonna you are gonna be chasing the unicorn dude i will but if as soon as i get it it'll be so sweet if you get it if, is what you're saying though, you it, don't know if i get you it don't know and the camera doesn't malfunction during it <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of contingency there's here. a lot of ways to go wrong <laughs> there's a lot of ways and then maybe guinness is like yeah it's an obsolete record no one plays n64 anymore seriously anyway what if you rigged it so Rough. Yeah, if anyone else has N64 Mario Tennis stories um, to share, please do. Don't go for the record, though. That's, that's I called it. But yeah, that was a great game. It was one of my favorite tennis games for sure. And uh, I spent a lot of a lot of the uh, beginning of the last decade playing it. Hours and hours and hours on end. All by myself. Fun times. How about you, Courtney? you have anything you want to rant or rave about this week? Sure. Um, I guess it's kind of both a, a rant and rave. Okay. Because I'm going to rave about something and then I'm going to rant about it. Okay. I've been kind of catching up on all the 30 for 30 uh, videos, which are ESPN kind of short documentaries that right. they've been, that they've been doing the last couple of years about a bunch of different uh, uh, sporting topics, and they're all streaming for free on Netflix. So usually when I'm working or something like that, I'll just kind of put one on and have it in the background. And the good ones are ones that you kind of sit up and you pay attention to. And the crappy ones are the ones that you just like an hour passes and you're like, oh, I what happened? I don't care. But there have been, you know, a lot of a lot of really good ones. But one of the ones that um, that I'm going to talk about, I guess, is it's called nine point seven nine, which is the one about Ben about the what was that? 
88 Seoul Olympics. 88 Seoul. I was like, it wasn't LA. Seoul, the Seoul Olympics, the 100 meter dash with Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis, and a bevy of other cast of characters that is generally known as the dirtiest race in uh, track history because of all of the doping and steroids that were allegedly or eventually proven to be happening at the um, in that race. Um, but it was just kind of incredible. I mean, it kind of goes back and I was relatively young when all that was going on. So I didn't really know the context of what was going on. So to go back and kind of piece together the footage and, um, and kind of the culture, it does a really good job of like painting the culture of track at the time. You know, they have some of the the athletes who admitted to doping kind of explaining their rationale and you still have others who are very coy about it and, and won't just kind of say the words, but they're basically saying the words. Yeah. So it's it's kind of interesting in that way. But I just found it such an infuriating watch. I mean, it's great. Everybody should watch it. And this is not a knock on it. It's just my reaction to it. Simply because the absolute gall and the incredible like arrogance and smugness that comes across, especially to me with Ben Johnson was just mind-blowing. Like, I could not believe it. Just, like, even to this day, after being, like, kind of shamed and having the medal stripped from him and obviously the test coming back positive yeah. and all this, for him to just kind of sit there and almost shrug it all off, like, he didn't care, was just amazing. There's kind of a conspiracy theory that he lets loose that it was that he was, like, drugged, that, it, like, something was slipped into his post-race beer, and that's why um, it happened, but whatever i mean it was pretty clear that they were all doping at the time right. it's just that like he doped whether intentionally or accidentally during the race or during the olympics so that's why it was in his system but anyways if you're interested in kind of the culture of of i guess doping within sports kind of how it can get that way and and just want to see just some absolutely i don't know just some douchebag athletes talk to the camera this is your this is your documentary that sounds like, sounds like fun Quite... It was fun. I enjoyed it. I just was like, I enjoyed it insofar as like... You hate watching hate watch it. It was hate watching, but not because the documentary sucked. It's because the people sucked. Right. Understood. Right? Question for you to bring it back to tennis because okay. it's the thing I do. How do... If, if a tennis player got caught doping, like a top tennis player, let's say, like someone who is a top five guy or woman and had won like big tournaments, maybe slams, how would you want them to explain it? Or how would you want them to carry themselves afterwards? I would want them to kind of feel destroyed by it. Yeah. You know? And that's right. I think you have, I think you have to have them feel like they're it completely invalidated their accomplishments. Right. I mean, this is the problem that, you know, we see with the Lance Armstrong situation right now is that like in no at no point does it ever has it ever really come across at least to me that he is genuinely torn up about the revelations like that he doped. Yeah. Right. And that he fooled everybody. And, you know, there he is in his multimillion, you know, all that money is still his. I mean, in a lot of ways, like with Lance Armstrong, I kind of understand his attitude because he's like, well, I'm a freaking millionaire and I survived cancer. So I don't really care what you guys think. Yeah. And obviously that's just, an extreme. He's an extreme case. He's an extreme case. But yeah, with, the, you know, what you'd want to see is somebody who thought they could get away with something who didn't and is just absolutely embarrassed and humbled and yeah there should be outrage and there should be but not but at the same time i mean the reality is of is i can't think that anybody would be all that surprised yeah. because we're not because of tennis but just because of how we know doping can occur like we know it can happen at 
the upper echelons of any sport. So I don't know. I don't think that we could be in a situation where we'd be like, what? With absolute like shock and horror. Yeah, that's probably that's probably right. And it's case by case basis, obviously. But I just want everyone to know that if they do have to test me, if, if and when I set my, my Guinness Book of World Record, that I will be coming back clean. I hope. I have to think. I don't think I perform. I don't. I don't know how stay, I would stay, perform as enhanced. St- stay away from the Saborda Soledad. That's that's right. But to be fair, like you don't really actually drink any stimulant of any sort whatsoever. What like mean? I don't know if I, well, well, you have like a cup of coffee, but like have coffee. Yeah. yeah, but not like the way that I do. <laughs> no, I don't mainline coffee. I don't have like Red Bull or or whatever monster right. nonsense. No, this is all this is, you is oh natural Ben. So what what we're saying is that I should start doing this if I want to compete. No, no, not at all. Okay, not at all. Well, we'll we'll leave it at that. Make up your own minds about what my road should be as i look to make history and we look forward to making more history with you folks have a good one later